Welcome to Come and Reason. I'm taking the place of Tim Jennings today. I'm Linda Ojala. And I cannot tell you how happy I am to be able to be here. Uh, for the past year or so, I've been taking care of my mom, and I've been one of the online viewers. And I enjoy the online process, but it's taught me how much I value the in-person process. And so for each of you who have come or are coming, I really appreciate it uh, to support, but also it's nice to gather together with people who have like faith, to give each other strength, to listen to each other's problems, to give each other support. Being here is uh, just such a blessing for me. My mom died about a, a month ago, so that has allowed me to become more active, and I'm very appreciative. Today we're studying in the new quarterly, which is called the Three Cosmic Messages, which is another way of saying the Three Angels Messages. And we're doing the first lesson, which is Jesus wins, Satan loses. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful for a chance to come together to be a support to each other, to learn from you, to be filled with your Holy Spirit, to gain instruction, insight, guidance, even discipline sometimes. Please be in our hearts today, be in this room with all of us who are together and those online. Join us and help us to be unified in you. We pray for the leadership of the church. We pray for the leadership of the country. There is so much turmoil, and we see the signs of the times of the end all around us. Bless us as we study your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we are looking at Revelation 12. It's kind of a run-up to Revelation 14 in the three angels' messages. That's, the court, that's what this quarter is going to be about. And I want to just say, uh, I don't know everybody's you know, study of the Bible level, so I'm just going to kind of briefly talk about Revelation for a minute and say that it was given to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. They, he was the last of the apostles, the last of the disciples to die. Everyone else had been either put to death by the sword or crucified, etc. John was, they attempted to kill John by burning him in boiling oil, but that didn't work. So they said, we can't kill him, we'll just exile him. Patmos is still there. It's a rocky island, not much to see. Um, John was sent there by the Roman Emperor Titus Flavius Domitianus in AD 95 as a criminal because he couldn't be killed by, with boiling oil. Uh, we think of it as an awful thing to have to go through periods of loss, of emptiness, uh, of exile, or where you feel like nobody is your friend, <laughs> nobody really cares what happens to you. But with John and with us, he found a greater relationship with God during the period of emptiness. I like to call it the margins of life. If you look at a page, they have the, like this page here, you have the busyness section, but then you have the margins around the edge, which define the busyness section. The margins are not blank space. The margins are creative space, the space that you can do anything with. It's not a defined space. So you have all the writing in the middle. Our busy lives are busy lives. But sometimes, and I've discovered this greatly over this past year, 
Isolation can be a period of creativity and growth, of a growing relationship with God, and John found that to be the case. He actually had a closer relationship with Jesus in the last parts of his life there than he had had before because he was not distracted. And due to his uh, ability to just take in what God had to say to him, he was given the book of Revelation. Revelation, it describes itself in its prologue as being a revelation of Jesus Christ. And you can take that to mean a revelation given by Jesus Christ to tell us what the future is, or you can think of it as the revelation about Jesus Christ. There's a reason this book is given, and it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which Jesus gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the book, the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who take it to heart and of what is written in it, because the time is near. Of course, what, 2,000-ish years ago, uh, more than that, the time doesn't seem very near to us. But when you think of our lifespans, we don't live 2,000 years. To us, every day is soon, and every day is near. We could go out on the road here and be in a car crash or whatever. And this could be our end time right now. So when Jesus says, soon and near, that he's talking to you personally. Your time of the end is soon. Your time of the end is near. And as I age, it seems to be getting nearer and nearer. <laughs> I'm the finally the last one in my family. To, in my core family, I'm now the last one to be alive. In the past five and a half years, I have nursed and cared for and case managed for my entire rest of my family, my father, then my younger sister, and now my mother, and so I'm the last one standing. <laughs> so I told Ken, I said, you know, you know what that means? Both our parents are now dead. He said, we're next. <laughs> we're next. <laughs> so it's like you, I, I picture us on, in an airport on, a, on one of those walking things where you just stand there and it makes you go along whether you're walking or not. That's what I picture. All of the rest of them have dropped off and we're now proceeding in line. So, I want to read Revelation 12, because we might as well get the lay of the land here and see what it is we're going to be studying today. So, Revelation 12, and I'm reading, and I'll be using the New International Version uh, today. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. 
But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Oh. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. <laughs> He's filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. In an eternal time, the time is short. When you think of eternity versus 6,000, 7,000 years here, this is a drop in the eternal bucket, so to speak. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared to her for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the ser- serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the, the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So we have a lot to cover, but as the lesson says, Jesus wins, Satan loses. Shall we just, all right, close up and go now? <laughs> I think we pretty much know that. <laughs> We've been taught that all of our lives, but maybe we should learn why we know that, what these things mean. I will say that for many people, the symbolism that I just read and is filled in Revelation can be very perplexing. So people prefer to read the easier books, the Psalms, the Gospels. Aren't they lovely? Leave Revelation to the scholars because it's confusing. But what if we read Revelation and skip the symbols? What could we learn about Jesus, his mission, our mission, and our future? So I one day went through Revelation and summarized each page in my Bible, leaving out the symbols. So what could you learn about what's going on without the symbols? Is Revelation worth reading even if you don't understand the symbols? So this is what my summary for each of the pages ended up. And see what you think. This calls for taking it to heart. He loves us and has freed us from our sins. Repent, go back to your first love, do what you did at first, overcome. Do God's will to the end. Remember what you received and heard. Obey it and repent, be earnest. Worthy is the lamb. Uh, Allow me a bit of symbolism here. I think I'm pretty sure we all figured out the lamb is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world per John 1.29. They are the words of John the Baptist who when he spoke about Jesus He purchased men for God. God will lead to springs of living water. We'll never again thirst for spiritual life. Repent of the work of your hands and acts. It is time for God to judge the dead. Overcome by taking the remedy for for sin Jesus created with his life, death, and resurrection, as well as your testimony about him. 
Obey God's commands. Hold to the testimony of Jesus. This calls for faithfulness, patient endurance, and wisdom. Stay awake and keep your clothes on. He comes like a thief. Abandon the confused messages about God so you don't sin or receive plagues. God's judgments are just and true. He gives the right, us the righteous acts we do. The, ju- the dead are judged by what they've done. God will live with us, wipe every tear from our eyes, and make everything new. Worship God. I am coming soon to give to everyone according to what he's done. I would encourage you to, that's what I got reading through Revelation and leaving out the, the symbols. Try it yourself sometime. Go through and just kind of summarize. Don't look at the symbols. Just summarize what the basic word says. Do you find that what I've just read is the, the Christian's process, is the salvation? It describes our whole life as Christians, our, uh, our mission, what we are to accomplish, what we're expected to learn and do, what Jesus did for us and what the outcome will be. You know, and all of that is in Revelation without the symbols, except for the Lamb. So I've read that instead of reading Revelation like a a linear journey from one point to another, Revelation should be read and understood more like holding a beautiful diamond and turning the facets like that. You're often looking at the exact same things, but from a different perspective. And so it's confusing because sometimes you read, now now they're in heaven. Wait, they were just on earth. The child was born. Wait, they're having war in heaven. It sounds like out of sequence. And it is out of sequence. It's not a linear pattern. It's a very um, facet-driven pattern. So they're looking at this whole experience through different facets, as, as if you would go around a building looking in through different windows. Now, this speaks of a war. Uh, Revelation we're t- 12, we're talking about the war that started in heaven, it says. that didn't start here on earth, it started way before we were born. But here we are, we find ourselves living inside a life and death spiritual war in the prisoner, what I call the prisoner of war camp of the universe. We didn't ask to be born here. We didn't ask to be born sinners. We can't get out <laughs> ourselves. We're trapped. We're at the mercy of all the bad things that can happen. We, we are essentially prisoners. Without Christ's intervention, we would be, it would be an awful life, and then you're dead. And people without Christ have that experience. They are without God. They live their life the best they, however they see fit, and that's it. So the, 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 the gospel is that we don't have to be trapped here, that God has given his son, has gone all the way to the cross to enable us to get off <laughs> this, this planet, to get out of this mess, to be rescued from the prisoner of war. Now, if you, I don't know if any of you have ever been prisoners of war. No, no, except for the war we're all in right now. But I've read stories of prisoners of war who their, their heart leaps for joy when they see their planes coming over when they get news that maybe they're going to be rescued. So what you hope when you are being rescued is that you are, the person who's coming to rescue you is stronger than the person holding you captive. (laughs) And then, so we talk about the rod of iron, which is strength. I want to just challenge us. We think of Satan as, as our captor. 
But the more you read and study, the more it may seem that we are our own captor, that we have the choice to stay in this war, to be the victim of the war, to be a prisoner of war until you die, or we have the chance to accept what Jesus has to offer and be released from this prison and saved. So I want to look a little bit about how Jesus saves us from ourselves, from this prison camp. Isaiah one twenty four twenty five says, Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, look at how many times strength and might is talked. I'm strong, I'm stronger than strong, I'm the strongest, declares, Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. That's a verse that's always surprised me because it doesn't seem to be our style of revenge or avenging. And maybe that's why Jesus says, leave the revenge business to me. Because God cares about the people who are wounded and are hurting us because of their woundedness. God cares about them and wants them to be saved. And when we're hurt by them, we don't necessarily care. (laughs) Just speaking from personal uh, experience, you know, sometimes you can be hurt so badly, you just want bad things to happen to them. That's not God's style of avenging. He wants to avenge in order to save. And he, according to this, his avenging is taking away the bad things inside of us that are making us hurt other people in our relationships. Isaiah 35, 3 and 4 says, Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with a vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. As prisoners of war, are we glad? (laughs) that our Savior is not only capable of saving, but also strong enough to beat the enemy, strong enough to beat the enemy out of us. (laughs) We know Satan's doomed no matter how strong he may appear. He's depicted as the accuser of our brethren. We see that in Job, for example. Uh, Job, have you seen my servant Job? Well, he's he's only your guy because you protect him. And so then Satan proceeded to do what Satan always does, destroy, harm, kill. We are warned as earthlings that even though this battle began in heaven, Satan and his angels were thrown down from heaven and has come to us, lucky us, filled with fury because he knows his time is short. Satan is described... I don't want to linger on Satan, but he's described, if you, if you think that you ever have a rest from Satan, you don't. Satan doesn't need sleep. He doesn't use sleep. He's described as sleepless, relentless, ruthless, destructive, malevolent, and exceedingly deceptive. A roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and he knows us better than we know ourselves. Better than our spouses know us, which is probably pretty well. He knows just what buttons to push, where our weaknesses are, how to manipulate us. He may not be able to read our thoughts or our unspoken prayers, but he's really good at interpreting body language, and he's been at this for thousands of years. So Isaiah 14 talks about the end of the one who oppresses the people with unceasing blows and relentless aggression. 
calling him the king of Babylon. And so some people interpret this as actually referring to the king of Babylon. So, but he's described not as the actual king of the actual Babylon. He's described as the one who fell from heaven, from being the morning star, the son of the dawn. Because he said in his heart, I will ascend to the heaven and enthrone on the mount of assembly and make himself like the most high. He's accused of making the world a wilderness, overthrowing its cities, not allowing his captives to go home. He will be brought down to the realm of the dead, and his followers are slain by the sword. The final judgment against him comes in verse 10. You have destroyed your land and killed your people. This is a result of the war we're part of and why the tie love Jesus wins and Satan loses. This is the judgment against him. We get, God gave him a land. I mean, he took the land and he deceived the people. And he showed exactly what he's like. He showed his character in every facet. And the final decision is that he destroyed his land and killed his people. Do we see evidences of our land being destroyed? Yeah. I mean, every, every way you look, I mean, this big earthquake and quakes after quakes in Turkey, you know, fires, floods, mountains of snow or drought on the other hand. So the earth, it, it's funny because I, I, uh, I like the Iris Seismic Monitor. I learned about it years ago when I was doing a, a speech on bad things, natural disasters. Are they happening more often or does it just seem like it? And they all were happening more often. More often earthquakes, volcanoes, tornadoes, hurricanes. All of them were happening more often. But that was about 15 years ago. Now when I go to that same site where it used to be, um, the site shows earthquakes that have happened in the past 30 days that are 4.0 and above. They don't even do anything with what's lower than that, which are happening all the time. The 4.0 and above is all they care about. Back when I was doing my research, it was an average of 350 of those earthquakes, 4.0 and above, on earth every month, every 30 days. 350, 450. You know what it is now? It's like somewhere between the high 800s to the low thousands. Every month of 4.0 and above. And uh, it's funny because if you go on that site, the earthquake will have, each earthquake has a number. If you click on the number with your computer, you can go to the sound of the earthquake. And it, it condenses the sound and it has a waveform and you can hear the earthquake. And it, and it sounds, they, all, they sound different from each other. But they're at a decibel level that we can't hear. So when the earth, when the Bible says the earth is groaning under the weight of sin, it literally is groaning under the weight of sin. I mean, we pull uh, petrol, gas out of the, the ground so much every year. And nature hates an empty space. You know, what's it going to do? It's going to start filling in that empty space with something. So we get more and more and more earthquakes. And that doesn't even count the earthquakes due to fracking which are happening kind of where they're fracking, where they've really not had earthquakes before. So in just 15 years, just that one type of natural event, the earthquakes, has what? Tripled? And that's just in this short period of time. So if we could hear that decibel level, we would hear a low rumble all the time. Animals can hear it, they react to it, but we can't. It, the earth is literally groaning. 
I want to ask the question, just because Jesus wins, the title, Jesus wins, Satan loses, does that mean we do? Well, if he didn't on the cross, we'd all be in a pickle. <laughs> he, made, he made a way to win for us. But does that necessarily mean we do? Not unless we choose. Yeah. yeah. That's true. We, you know, we have to choose. Exactly. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Um, got a question. Might be a little bit off topic, but I'm used to Tim talking about God's love, character, and justice. I just, for some reason, I'm glad you're talking about Revelation. Read the last chapter in uh, Greg Converse this morning. And I got a question that's been bothering me. It talks about. The wicked, it sounds to me like they burn longer than uh, a lot of the other people. The devil burns longer than all of them. What's your answer to that? Well, I can tell you what Tim's answer is, (laughs) and probably I agree with it, is that it's not because God says, okay, you were super bad, I'm going to kill you longer. I'm going to take longer to kill you. It has more to do with your outlook on what you're being confronted with. So. At the end of time, we're told that people will be shown why, that they will um, see why they were lost. They will be shown who they really are. It's what causes them to want the, the mountains and the, and the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face. Because that face, or the God, present in front of them, removes all their rationalizations. You know, if we do bad things... I've heard it said one time, when I do bad things, I just put it in the basement of my mind and lock the door, and I just don't visit. (laughs) Well, you really can't do that in the presence of God. He knocks down all that, all those pretensions, all those rationalizations that, you know, we give ourselves, oh, it's God's will, maybe not, maybe it's your will. So that's the, uh, the end of time when they're confronted by all this. Some of them have a lot more to confront than others and give up easier and just say, you're right, you know, okay, <laughs> you know, I'm, I, that was bad. And not only do you see what you did, but you just, you see how it affected everybody else. You know, if, if you hurt people, you have no idea what that ripple is going to be. On the good side, if you help people, you don't have any idea how good that ripple is going to be either. Teresa. Well, and we need to remember the burning that she's talking about is not a literal flame. Right. It's the, the love of God, the light of God shining down on yeah. you. Yeah. And it does right. reveal the that we've done. So Satan being the one who deals with the longest, is Satan's the one who's caused everything to happen to everybody. So he will have a lot more to think about than everybody else mm-hmm. does before he gives up. Okay. Hence, it takes longer. It's a longer it period. It depends on what you've, what you've done and how much you've justified in your own heart that was right, that wasn't right. So he has to suffer from God's glory longer. From God's glory, right. It's not even he suffered. He's suffering from his own decisions longer. Mm-hmm. He, at that time, can no longer deny that God is a loving God and that all the lies he told us were absolutely bad lies. Mm-hmm. And he has to recognize that in himself. And then, and what I believe, he gives us. 
And Isaiah 33 helps to describe that. So looking at Isaiah 33, this is the feeling that they get when they're in God's presence. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us, who, who of us can dwell with the everlasting burning? Well, there is an everlasting burning. It's called God's presence. Flames come out from him, the Bible says. Rivers of flames. So who is it that can dwell with the eternal burning? He who, he who walks righteously and speaks what's right, who rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hand from accepting bribes, who stops his ears against plots of murder and shuts his eyes against contemplating evil. Not just doing evil, but thinking about it. This is the man who will dwell on the heights, whose refuge will be in the mountain fortress. His bread will be supplied and water will not fail him. His eyes will see the king and his beauty. So it defines here an everlasting fire. But the thing that people have been warned to avoid, that is everlasting hell, is actually would be if these people were forced to live in the everlasting fire of God's presence. In that everlasting fire, you can see that they're thinking, who, who can dwell with this? This is awful. Because everything they've ever done and the consequences are exposed to them. And they call for the rocks and mountains to fall on, but that doesn't mean the rocks and mountains do fall on them. <laughs> You're a popular man. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. The part I want to say something about is the bitterness. You know, we're all being healed and transformed as we behold God. And we're going to get the light of God's presence one way or another, whether you wait at the end and don't choose him, or right now in his presence. Because let me tell you, it's not a pretty sight to reveal what's in the heart. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a burning in itself. When I God agree. shows you something, mm-hmm. it hurts. Mm-hmm. And are you going to rationalize it? Are you going to, well, if she hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have done that. If he hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have done that. No. Nope. You take responsibility for your own stuff as God reveals it to you. Mm-hmm. And one thing, bitterness is so sometimes unrecognizable. And it's as God reveals it to you, and sometimes it's in a hard situation. And you are very humble. And so don't you think that sometimes the hard situation may be part of the plan to, yeah. to reveal, to help you weed the garden while you're at it, you know, instead of waiting and doing it all at the end? That process is going on right now with all of us. Mm-hmm. And not realizing the poison of bitterness and what it can do to your heart until you come to the point where I see it, Lord. Mm. I own it. I see it. I'm done. I'm done trying to make somebody accountable for what they did to me. I'm done withholding bitterness, and God reveals it to you. Well, I didn't think I had bitterness, but he'll reveal it to you. Oh, praise the Lord. As you get yes. closer and closer to Jesus, he will reveal what's in the heart so that when he comes, we will be able to look at him, and there's he's healed what was on the inside. So the Bible describes that as him rising with healing in his wings or rays. And so 
the I like Tim's description of say you're in a cave, lost in a cave, trapped in a cave for a couple of weeks, total total darkness, and then somebody rescues you at noon, brings you out at noon, where the sun is brightly shining. Is it going to be a wonderful experience? No, that you've been in darkness for so long, and now you've you've got all this happening. It's very painful. But let's say they bring you out at midnight, and then you sit out on a hill and watch the sunrise. That's not so painful. You know, you can you can adjust to that. And so I think the experience that, that Brenda's talking about is perfectly true in that this is the time <laughs> to weed the garden, to let the, the rising truth come into you and get rid of the stuff. Um, and it's still painful. It's still painful, but it's in doses. You know, Jesus said, it's, it's expedient that I leave, because if I leave, I'll send you the Holy Spirit, and he'll take what's mine and give it to you. And so what is his? His character? I just had a, a thought. There's no pain-free no pain options. And last Sabbath, Tim talked about that river of fire mm-hmm. in, in Sabbath school. <clears throat> made me think of, um, there's a chapter in Ezekiel that talks about this river coming out from the throne. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. And also, if we put that river with Daniel, I think it's seven, where there's rivers and rivers of fire. The one in Ezekiel says it's just ankle deep. Then it's knee deep. Then it's hip deep. And then it keeps... And it makes me think of, you know, standing in God's presence where there is truth and love. Love that just keeps coming. It just keeps coming, and there's rivers and rivers of love. Nothing can stop it. Mm-hmm. It comes in blood proportions. Mm-hmm. And some of the people that haven't dealt with some of the things in our lives, you know, our brokenness, It takes longer to deal. I mean, love just keeps coming and keeps coming, and maybe that's why some suffer longer than others, because nothing can stop it. It's just overwhelming. Well, it makes me think of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, God loved Nebuchadnezzar a lot, put through Nebuchadnezzar a lot, (laughs) to get him on the right track, to get him off of himself and onto realization where he is in the scale of things. I think that actually the, the guys in the fiery furnace, the three guys, were um, an attempt to show Nebuchadnezzar the end of time, how things really, hang on just a second, the, the way, because what was destroyed by the fire? The ropes that bound them and something else. The people that threw them in. The people that threw them in. <laughs> They themselves were not touched. They didn't smell like fire. There wasn't a singe on their beard, their hats. They're described as fully attired in hat, turbans, they call it, and so on. Their doubt in God. The onlookers who were watching this, it destroyed their doubt Hmm. in a God. Well, that's a good point. So Nebuchadnezzar leaps up with amazement and says, well, didn't we throw three people in there? Why Why is there a fourth one in there? And he looks like a son of the gods is the way he puts it. So here he is seeing God's people in the flame, in this case, literal flames, 
uh, symbol, symbolic of the end of time, he sees God in with his people in the flames, and they're just fine. And the only things that ever got burnt were the things that bound us, which in our case might be our sins, our, our habits, our obsessions, whatever it is, and the people who try, to, who try to throw you in, who give you a rough time in life and don't ever get healed themselves. I've learned a long time ago that people who aren't healed do nothing but hurt other people their whole lives. It is sad because they can't have the kind of life they wish they would have because they hurt everybody they're around. I compare it to a campfire. It's fine and nice and warm if it's over there, but the closer you get to the fire or even up to walking in the fire, you're going to get burnt. So some people are like burning fire. You get close enough to them and they will burn you. (laughs) I mean, you will get hurt. doesn't have to do with as much of who you are, except you allowed them to get close to you. But it... it, um, if we find ourselves too close to that fire, we will get burnt, we will get hurt. And I think the strength of Christianity is the healing. that go, We come to God daily for this weeding process and healing. Helps us to heal from these so we don't pass it on, that we don't go through life hurting everybody. And I think that's a tremendous strength of Christianity. Yes, Teresa. You were reading earlier, Revelation 12, about the woman who had the moon beneath her feet and the sun above her head, which reminds me of what we're talking about. The moon is the lesser light. The sun is the brilliance of God. Mm-hmm. So she went from the moon to the sun. It was a process you're talking about. Yep. Slow process, the moon, the lesser light's here, the brighter light's here. And the 12 stars all around her head, like yeah. crown of 12 stars, which would remind you of? First thing that popped <laughs> into my mind was the lesser love and then the truth. I like that. That's excellent. And I think, you know, I, when we're looking at the 12 stars, what comes to your mind? Angels. I mean, Why the number 12? Oh, it was a <laughs> Well, we first had the 12 tribes. 12 disciples. 12 disciples, yes. So in both the Old Testament and New Testament, we have the holders of the truth, the spreaders, the messengers of the truth being 12. And Jesus didn't have to have 12 disciples. You know, he chose 12. Well, Judas joined the troop, uh, but and he made 12, and God knew that he was going to do that. So, when you yes, when you think of, uh, that's a really good point about the truth being growing exponentially in this church. Uh, we'll, we'll talk in a minute that the woman is the church, so... <laughs> So I wanted to, this text stood out to me this week because it's Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 20, and it's just before the Israelites go into the, finally go into the promised land. And it's a similar attitude as when they left Egypt. And I think it's a similar situation to where we are now. We are, uh, someplace Ellen White says, the, not only were the plagues to make Egypt let the Israelites go, but they were to help the Israelites want to go. And that really surprised me because, you know, we, it may be a terrible situation you live in in your home, for example, if you're, if you're an abuse victim. But it's the situation you know. The unknown is always so scary. You know, you may have all kinds of, we have a, we're prisoners of war, but this is the only place we know. We don't know the universe. We know here. 
And so it's tempting to just make the best of it. While we're here, let's just make the best of it. So I'm, I'm thinking we need a scope that's bigger than what we see. And this text talks about God talking to the Israelites as they're on the brink of entering the promised land. I think it applies to us. Now, what am I, what, and he's just gone through a bunch of blessings and cursings. You're going to be blessed if you do all this. This is how you're going to be blessed. You're going to be cursed if you do all that because that's not going to, the blessings aren't going to happen. Now, what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. Let's take this to heart. Is he asking us to do something unbelievably difficult? You must climb Mount Everest to the top or you won't be saved. Well, he doesn't ask us to do that. (laughs) What I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven, so you have to ask who will ascend to heaven to get it and proclaim it so we can obey it. No, the word is very near to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. So you may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it so we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to to walk in obedience with him and keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you're not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, and we may not physically bow down to gods these days, but we can easily have them, anything that is an obsession to us, anything that usurps our time with God and with him and and the actions that we would be doing if we were close to him. But if your heart turns away from him and you're not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call on the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life. And he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then I, the other text that jumped in my mind when I was looking at that, Ezekiel 18, 23 says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? And then Ezekiel 18, 32 says, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. So when we think of evil people, the Hitlers, the Stalins, the Mussolinis, the Hussein, (laughs) whoever is evil and doing evil things, do we think that God is glad when they die eternally? They were his children too. So when we look at evil people, shouldn't we be (laughs) having God's perspective? They hurt me. They hurt the people I love. They're evil. But is our response to be, let's kill him? Or they should be killed? Or should our response be, God loves them like he loves me? But they just don't get it. They haven't gotten it. They're wounded and they're hurting other people. Pray for those people. I think we're lacking compassion. The compassion for other people. We're all children of God. And I, I really like what Tim said about a long time ago 
I don't know if he said it recently, let's say you find out one of your children is being molested and you're upset, angry, frustrated. Oh, who is it? Then you find out it's your other child that's molesting them. So that's the quandary that God's in. All his children, some of them are really hurting each other. Sometimes people are caught, pulled off the playing field, put, put to sleep, so that the other children have a chance to grow up without them being killed or intimidated or whatever by the evil. But he doesn't take pleasure in the death of anyone. So the overview, we're still on the overview on Sabbath afternoon. The overview is about choosing the winning side. That's what it obviously states. Weighing the consequences of life and death and choosing life. Who wins over death and Satan? So the memory verse they, they text, text that they have here is, And the devil was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So you have a description of who the offspring are of this woman. Keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. When we think of the Ten Commandments, uh, we, the, there were a lot of commandments given to the Israelites that were for that specific time and a lead-up to help them understand this plan of salvation and Christ's sacrifice. We don't need those anymore because we have the actual Christ's sacrifice and we see the fulfillment of those. But the commandments were never done away with. They were part of creation. They're how life was built to work at its best. So moving on to Sunday, the battle in heaven. This lesson seems to um, highlight freedom, the freedom of choice. And it's one of the things we highlight here, come and reason a lot. You have freedom of choice. You are not destined to be anything. God knows what your choices will be. And that's a kind of a hard thing, a facet to think about. He knows what you're going to do, but he doesn't make you do it. He just knows. Like he knew Judas was going to betray him, but he didn't make Judas betray him. In fact, if he did anything, he tried his best to win him over. He had all the same experiences that the other disciples had. He went out, healed, cast demons out. God used him mightily with all the other disciples. He was right in there with him. All the time, Jesus knew what his final choice was going to be, but he gave him all the opportunity he could to not make that choice. In the end of time, when people look at that situation or other situations that we may be more personally aware of, we will uh, also realize that God gave us every opportunity we could to get to know him and so on, but our choice was to do what we thought was expedient. I think in Judas's case, he thought Jesus needed help, that he wasn't a very good PR guy. You know, he, he really wasn't taking over the, you know, he wasn't taking on the Messiah role too seriously. He wasn't gathering troops or trying to push out the, the Romans or anything. But he was just going around being nice to everybody, healing people. I mean, you know, get on with this. <laughs> so he thought that he was going to, you know, sort of shove him into the spotlight. And then when he realized, oops, uh, that wasn't, I was wrong. Interesting to see that Peter, both he and Peter betrayed him. Everybody deserted him and denied him and betrayed him in one way or another. But the two, Judas, except John, he, but he ran away at first, but he came back. Everybody deserted him in the guard, you know, when they came to arrest him. But then he came back and he was, he knew Caiaphas. He might have been a relative, they think. 
Um, he knew the name. He's the only one that mentions the name of the guy who got his ears cut off, his ear cut off by Peter, Malchus. He, so he knew the servant's name in the in Caiaphas' household. And he was let in because he was known by them. And then he helped Peter get in. But the two main protagonists in this story are Judas and Peter, both of which denied him in their own way, had false expectations and so on. And they represent the two people at the end of time. The types of people will be the people who thought God's way is wrong and chose the wrong way or the, and didn't repent. I'm just like, well, I can't worship this. I can't follow this leader. If Jesus isn't going to be the kind of Messiah I think he should be, then I can't follow him. I'm doomed. Or Peter loved Jesus and felt miserable because he'd betrayed him and was too afraid to stand up and so on and cried his heart out, you know, and repented. So here we are, all sinners. Here we all are sinners. <laughs> all, the, all of us have done the wrong thing. All of us are in the same boat, so to speak. But which category will we end up with? Uh, that's our choice. And we have freedom to choose that. Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. You were talking about Peter. and I've, I've been a little fearful of the time of the end, the time of trouble. Peter was crucified upside down. I believe he suffered uh, immense physical pain. I don't think he had to suffer the withdrawal of his father's presence like Jesus did on the cross. But I was thinking about Stephen being stoned. He saw the glory of God. Did he feel the stones hitting? Did the martyrs feel the flames when they were singing? Are we going to be tortured and and killed in the end? Or or some of us will be in the mountains. I think some of us will be tortured and killed. Uh, I have personally not been in that experience. <laughs> Can't say, but the evidences are in the, po- in the things you mentioned, singing in flames isn't something you normally do. So you would have to think that something extraordinary was going on, like the guys in the flames before Nebuchadnezzar. Um, that they, and Stephen is explicitly said to have op- looked up to heaven and seen the throne and Jesus at the right hand. He says, I see heavens open and there's Jesus at the right hand. And his face was said to look like an angel. I don't think he was paying attention to what was being done to him. I think his, he was elsewhere, you know, maybe in vision, but it doesn't, they both those instances um, and many others you read about where, you know, you feel like God made it easier. For they were singing in prison with angels. Well, it's the relationship. It's all about the relationship. You know, you, you, do, you make a free choice. You choose what you want. What, who could be your leader? Judas decided Jesus couldn't be his leader. Peter decided he could. You know, and he repented of his, felt badly and repented, whereas Judas turned around and killed himself. We also have to remember that God won't put anything on us that we cannot bear. He won't put more than we can. He knows what we're going to choose. He knows how we're going to react. And I think before that time comes, he'll lay to rest the people that won't be able to withstand persecution and stuff. So before the end of time, Ellen White talks about many people, especially older and younger, being laid to rest so they didn't have to face that particular thing. Tim said at the flood, it wasn't just seven people that were righteous. God laid to rest the people that were not able to stand it. Methuselah died the very year of the flood. Yes. And so he didn't have to spend his old life spending a year on a boat with, with animals and who knows what flies. I'm sure flies lived in there because we still have flies today. 
So, um, Linda, you were talking about the difference between Peter and Judas, and Bible text coming to my mind about Jesus not being a respecter of persons. Hmm. That he gives everybody the same, and it's their choice. So I just feel like that might be an example to us that in Judas's case and in Peter's case, Jesus treated them the same, and it was their choice. He wasn't a respecter of persons, and he gave them both the same chance. And we have that story to show us what choice will do and where it will lead you. Jesus and ultimately, always. being saved is our choice, yeah. oddly enough. It isn't some dictation, okay, you know, you're not going to be, you are, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. yes, no, yes, no. We actually make the choice. Doesn't Tim believe that the pe- some of the people that died in the flood repented and are going to be saved? No, he said, he said it's possible. Possible. Because some people might have been prevented from getting, like kids, for example, might have been prevented from going by other people. You just don't know. But even if they, if they did and were put to sleep at that point, they haven't. I like the idea that nobody's died yet. All are alive. The Bible says all are alive in Christ. That's because he's got the backup and the server and the clouds of all of us. And until that's erased for you, you are still alive to God. He has you safe uh, in his backup server, so to speak, which he'll download into a new body for those who choose to allow him to, to do surgery and fix them. Or if they, if they don't choose God, then ultimately it gets erased. And they are, the Bible describes death as ultimate death, not sleep, but death as the deepest darkness. Uh, just one comment on, on the concept of fear. Um, because, you know, we have stories, uh, for example, of like Corey Ten Boom, uh, when our family was in the, the camp. And I remember one in particular where she and her sister were watching somebody get beaten by uh, one of the soldiers. And Corey herself was looking at the individual getting beaten and feeling so badly for that person. And her sister was looking at the person who was doing the beating and felt pity on that person because she understood that it was harming them more Mm -hmm. than it was the person who was being abused. And when you understand, you know, perfect love casts out fear. If I can love my enemy, I can understand they're harming themselves more than they're harming me. Amen. You know, love casts out fear. If I am in God's love, I don't have to be afraid. Because they can't actually kill me, like you said. They can't take me out of God's hand. They can end my life here but they can't take me out of his hand. Um, And I can still love them and hope that they might repent. Um, And some of those soldiers did eventually repent. They realized what they had done. Um, So, you know, regardless of what happens to us, you know, God says we don't have to worry about what we're going to say. He's going to give us the words that we need at the time. And I don't think we need to be concerned about it. You know, he tells us not to worry. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're brought before judges, said, he'll give us the words, as you yeah. said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and live in fear. Yeah. And, and living in fear is not the. And I, I just, we're running out of time here, but I would like to say, just for your imagination's sake, imagine a world, a universe, where everybody who you meet loves you more and cares more about you than they do about themselves. 
where you can travel, you can ex- meet people, g- glean the experiences of eternity, the wisdom, the knowledge, the beauty of eternity. You can glean all of that without any fear of rejection, of being hurt. Of we, I mean, we don't understand it because our whole lives are fear, whether you know it or not. We're afraid we're going to lose our job. We're afraid we're going to burn. The house is going to burn down. We're afraid somebody's going to steal our stuff and steal our spouse, steal our our reputations. We're afraid, afraid, afraid all the time. And to imagine a world with with no fear that everybody you meet. Now you have to be that kind of person to be there too. The kind of person who thinks of that other, uh, the wound that they're causing themselves. You know that needs to be part of our our thought process. And before we close, there is something I found, you know, I think we pretty much, and you can look in the lesson notes, uh, what does the, what does the dragon mean? It's Satan that tells it in the, in the, uh, it tells right there in the, in Revelation who it is. The church is the woman and the male child is the Messiah and the rod of iron is the scepter of kingship, which we talked about earlier, the strength to provide leadership that that is unbreakable. But I found a, a, an interesting thing, and I just jumped to that. And you can look at the lesson notes for all this other stuff I put in there. But I just found this so fascinating. I used to be a case manager for transplants. And um, this this really caught my attention because we always talk about the blood of the lamb. They're, cured, they're saved by the blood of the lamb and the testimony that they give. There was a... Let me see. Oops, too far. According to News Medical and Life Sciences, December 10, 2019, prior to and for four years after his stem cell transplant, which is they take stem cells because they're kind of infant cells that can be directed to become different things. So they use the stem cells um, for many different things, all kinds of cancers and all sorts of things. Even they use it for sickle cell anemia, and that cures that. You have to have the right donor. But anyway, they for four, prior to and for four years after his stem cell transplant from an unrelated donor, a forensics lab tested a colleague that worked there in the forensic uh, criminal area, Chris Long, and found that by four months after transplant, only the DNA in his chest and head were his own. <laughs> At four years after his transplant, Chris was no longer present at all. And uh, um, being a nurse, just bear with me, even his semen was the other guy's DNA. (laughs) So if he had had a child, it wouldn't have been his own DNA. So when Christ refers to his blood, his life, the Bible says the life's in the blood. That's why you weren't supposed to eat unkosher meat with the blood in it. Because the life, the DNA, every time you eat meat, you're taking in animal DNA. Ellen White says you become more animalistic. Why? Because you're in keep eating DNA from animals. (laughs) So when Christ talks about the blood of the lamb, he's referring to his life, his character, his DNA, if it were, as it were, to that if we take that in, that is spend time with him, open up our hearts, let the weeding process daily. You have to, it's not, and that's one place I took exception in the lesson is that it said, just choose. I think it's more than that. Be related, closely related. I never knew you means we were never intimate. <laughs> Get away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. 
these were people who were doing things in God's name (laughs) he was talking to. And so intimacy with God. We need intimacy with God, closeness every day, so that this transplant, (laughs) this blood transplant from him, his DNA can replace ours. His character, his way of looking at things, his compassion, his insights. Of all the miracles that Jesus performed, I think the best miracle is the insight he had into everybody. John says he didn't, no one needed to tell him anything about themselves because he knew every man. Is that a miracle? I mean, he, he knew, what if I could know everything about every one of you and tell you, yeah, yes, you've been married five times and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. <laughs> well, he knew that about everyone and he knows about all, all of us. So um, I would like to just end by challenging that us that don't let anything get in the way of being intimate with God. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your long patience with us that we are so dull and so hard of understanding that we treasure life on earth so much more than our treasure our life with you here and in eternity. Please turn us our focus to you. And be well, we are open to your Holy Spirit to bring in the tools and cut and rewire and replumb and fix us, turn our dilapidated house into something that like it would have been without sin. We need you more than anything else, and we pray that you will live in us and help us to be part of your river of life so that as you flow into us, we allow you to flow from us to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Linda.